In the book, um, I try to develop an idea of strategy as being flexible, iterative, uh, pragmatic, based on um, the here and now, the problem at hand, rather than some uh, great goal-driven activity uh, from which you sort of you work out a great sequence of steps that gets you to where you want to be. I don't think most successful strategies work out like that, even when you end up with something that looks pretty clever and, uh, uh, and successful, you'll often find the decisions which led to it uh, were quite pragmatic, responding to problems long forgotten, but left a legacy of things that, uh, that nonetheless work in different circumstances. Um, this view of strategy means, I think, that it, it's going to be uh, embodied in people rather than in a document. All, people talk about having a strategy um, as if it's something that's going to be written down and that can be studied and everybody can follow. And those sort of documents are produced. People in this room have produced them. But actually, I think it's the strategist rather than the strategy that matters because the strategist can respond to events, can see things a difference, can, can, can move things along. Um, and I think that's quite important in these discussions which seem never-ending, even in this country, about lamenting the, the lack of strategy uh, and our failure to produce great strategy uh, and always suggesting this is almost a magic ingredient that if only it could be found, our policies would cease to be uh, flabby, incoherent and self-contradictory and all of a sudden would become bold, incisive and achieve everything you could possibly want, as if strategy uh, is the sort of intellectual shortcut to success, if only it would be a bit cleverer um, that we get our way. Um, and the, the pro not that there are not great strategists, uh, and they often work by asking great questions uh, and challenging what's going on around them, but I don't think it's a great strategy, um, because that suggests something that is rather fixed and single. Um, and because we're talking about great strategies, it's got to be, in the end, the person in charge. Um, you can have great strategic advisors, but in the end, Machiavelli was not the didn't have to be the great strategist, it had to be the prince. Uh, he, all he could do was advise the prince. Um, and I think when you see attempts to develop courses for strategists, um, or to encourage people how to be great strategists, you always have to remember this limiting factor. Who actually is going to be accountable for the decisions? Who certainly will take um, uh, pride in the success, will, uh, will, will ac accept responsibility, certainly for the success, but also has to accept responsibility for failure, as, as Kennedy um, remarked after the Bay of Pigs uh, when he uh, got the quote wrong something like uh, success has a thousand fathers but failure is an orphan um, or the famous quote of I think it wasn't actually Nixon who said um, uh, I take full responsibility let me now distinguish between taking responsibility and assigning blame <laughs> um, um, but in the end, it's the political leader that is responsible. It has to be the strategist. 
Um, and of course, therefore, when we're commenting on lack of strategy or otherwise, we're actually commenting on political leadership. And you can see this very much in, in, in current debates. Um, and when uh, Obama um, said recently, uh, apropos, as I recall, um, why he wasn't at that point authorizing attacks on ISIS targets in Syria, he said, we don't have a strategy. Actually, he added yet, a word that tended to get ignored uh, in, in the derision that then flowed in his direction. This is perfect faith. I'll have a strategy yet. Take care, think about what you're going to do before you do it. But the expectation that we need leaders with a strategy is very strong and very high. Um, well, how do we know that our leaders have got a strategy? Um, because a lot of the time, all we can do is infer this. Um, what do we look for? Well, what's pretty clear what we don't look to are these famous national security documents. Uh, because they're not, by and large, produced by the prime ministers or the presidents. Um, they approve them, they put a little forward in the front, commending this document and saying how it represents the most um, advanced thinking of its time on these difficult issues. Um, but they ha it doesn't come from the heart. It's not what they have written, and probably they've only had time to give it a cursory glance. And anybody even in a university who's ever put forward, developed a strategy document, knows full well the process by which they're produced, which starts with a really bright idea, uh, which is then progressively diluted through a series of iterations as you have to take account of other people, other concerns, other constituencies, then the fact that you've got to sell it to through the bureaucracy and the organisation, then to partners, and then it's going to appear in the Guardian the next day anyway, so if you put in too much that reveals of your true thinking, you know that you're absolutely stymied in what your bold plan was in the first place. Uh, so there's an inevitably tendency towards the bland um, or, and the uncontroversial, all the comprehensive coverage uh, in these in these documents. Occasionally, not say there's not nuggets there, but you've often got to look quite hard for the nuggets. So what we tend to look at are leaks in newspapers um, or speeches. And actually, if you look at it, the most important aspect of strategy delivery for most presidents and most prime ministers is the speech. Um, and if you, I want to say a bit more about Putin in a moment, when we're trying to work out what Putin's about, we've been looking at his big speeches, of which he's made a number, and they are indeed quite revealing, although how much the reveal of his actual strategy, I'm not always so sure. Um, so this creates a, a problem, because if you look at the literature on strategy, what good strategy uh, comes to, uh, it creates there's a, a, a terrible disjunction between the expectations of great strategy um, and what you can reasonably expect a busy politician to deliver. Uh, I'm not going to go through it all now, but in the book uh, I've got a section on the myth of the master strategist, which takes um, some of the suggestions about the ability to have a holistic view of the world, to anticipate first, second and third order problems, to see what your opponent, not only what your opponent thinks, but what other people over there are thinking, and somebody else in the other direction is thinking, and bring this all together, accept consequences and so on. Well, who's got the time to do all of that? 
certainly not a political leader besieged from all sides by different issues and challenges uh, that means that at best they're going to have a chance to read a one-pager and possibly only the first two bullet points of that. That's the the reality of of, of political life, unless you've got a big problem. Then they'll spend more time on it. Then they'll immerse themselves in the issue. And that actually is when strategy for Western political leaders tends to come into its own. Most of the time, um, at peacetime, expecting grand strategic visions from our political leaders is not only unrealistic, actually, if you think about it, it's probably a bit scary. Uh, You don't want political leaders in Western liberal democracies to start having visions. Uh, um, When George Bush said decried the vision thing, uh, actually I always had a lot of sympathy with him because he was saying he didn't like to do this sort of soaring political rhetoric um, that describes a better future in which all our problems are solved. It's sort of the strategy as a list of desiderata rather than anything realistic. Anyway, we're status quo powers. What's a strategy for a status quo power? How do you know a status quo power is succeeding? Nothing happens. <laughs> That's a good day is when nothing has happened. Uh, no crisis today. Nobody's done anything untoward. Great. We can carry on trading with each other. We can carry on being prosperous, uh, working out our domestic problems. Uh, that's a great day for a status quo power. A bad day is when something happens. And of course, by and large, it's in the nature of status quo liberal democracies that they are reactive. They very rarely, this is why Iraq was unusual, they very rarely initiate the action. By and large, they're responding to somebody else. Um, and that contrast between what they're doing, which is hoping the status quo continues indefinitely, uh, and what the other people are doing is going to show the other people as being bold and decisive where our lot look flat-footed and rather pathetic. Um, and they're obliged at this point to suddenly swing into action um, uh, and show how they're going to respond. So my, what I'm trying to get over <coughs> is the idea that we do look to strategy to individuals uh, who are going to be responsive to situations. Um, Great situations may produce great strategists, um, but there is a relationship between the situation and the strategist. And as the situation changes, the strategy should change. Um, It has to be flexible and responsive, and that is why we think of our great strategists as war leaders to the extent that they've been successful in their war leadership, uh, because that is the the sort of situation that can bring out their greatness if it exists. And that's another reason, because strategies have to be situation-specific. Again, I would be very cautious about suggestions uh, that there is a particular um, set of formulas that you should adopt. By and large... I argue in the book that what makes most sense uh, is, to, is to find friends, is to go for coalition formation. The most successful strategies uh, tend to be not the sort of Sun Tzu type cunning and deception, but good old fashioned uh, coalition building. 
of getting friends, putting together a group that's actually more powerful than your opponent. The best strategy is to be more powerful than your opponent. By and large, <laughs> by and large, they're the ones that win um, most of the time. Uh, it's very rare that the underdog actually wins. So, How much does this book cost? <laughs> it's quite cheap on Amazon. You can probably even an academic salary. Um, um, so, uh, I would normally sort of cite the lines from Ecclesiastes that the race doesn't always go to the most swift and the fight doesn't always go to the most strong. With Damon Runyon's rider, they're the ones to bet on. Um, and, and it's true, like, be strong, it? be more powerful than the other. It's quite hard. Uh, fact, it's not very interesting when you're more powerful uh, because it's less challenging, but actually, by and large, most of the time, you win. Um, so the interesting thing is strategy is when you're weaker, and the best thing to do when you're weaker is to make yourself stronger by finding friends to work with. But it does, that's, you, know, you can say that's a good thing to do, and that's a formula, but it's not a formula that would always work. So you know, the need to be empathetic, to go into the, the grind of coalition building and so on, uh, is great in certain circumstances, but at times you just need to be bloody-minded and stubborn. Uh, because that's what the situation may demand. Um, and people who are great in one set of circumstances may be pretty poor in another. Uh, it's just, again, another reason why not sort of reifying this sort of idea uh, of the master strategist. Um, because, just to give um, an obvious example of Churchill, um, whatever else one would have said about Churchill after the First World War, master strategist wouldn't be the first words coming to your lips. Um, he was a master strategist, a grand strategist, no, never, never a military, a military strategist, but as a grand strategist, he was brilliant during the Second World War. Uh, but if, he, if that car that had almost knocked him over in the 30s had succeeded, he would not be remembered uh, as a great strategist. Um, a lot of this came out of the debate that I had with, with Dan Steed in, in, in War on the Rocks, um, um, who cited Alexander the Great, but Alexander the Great died at 33. Um, you know, and, and, and what he created fell apart not long afterwards. Well, you know, if Alexander the Great had managed to stagger on till he was 60, his reputation might have looked quite different by the end. You know, he quit while he was ahead. Uh, and, uh, and that's maybe how you secure your reputation. Um, the other thing I just... I want to make two uh, further points. Um, and then just say... Um, a bit about uh, current crises. Um, the first is what always strikes me is while we're bemoaning uh, our, our flabbiness and weakness as strategists, a good chunk of the world believes we're absolutely brilliant at it. Um, you read what the Russians say or what the Iranians say, it's amazing what we've achieved. Um, the, 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 the plots and conspiracies that we've set in motion that everything that has annoyed them and gone wrong uh, is manifest. Uh, it, it demonstrates just how clever and sneaky we actually are. Think, and you just think of the variety of conspiracy theories that, that are current throughout the world, a testament to our extraordinary strategic competence. 
uh, being able to organise things which involve thousands of actors, all of which, all of whom managed to stay absolutely quiet about their uh, their role in these great achievements. Even Britain, still a pathetic power that we now are, still gets blamed by the Iranians because we used to be responsible for things that went wrong in Iran. It was a perfectly reasonable judgment to make 50 years ago. But it, we haven't quite been able to maintain the same level of performance still. Nonetheless, we still get blamed for things that go wrong in Iran. Um, and that partly reflects mindsets where, uh, of uh, uh, perhaps not trained in the, uh, in, the histori- in the historical cases that we're trained in, where you realise just how many screw-ups and there are, the importance of unintended consequences and so on. This is a world where all consequences are intended, which is, of course, the ideal world of the strategist. Um, the idea is, is only intended consequences happen, there are none that are unintended, and what you intend does happen. But of course, most of the time, what happens is far away, even when it's good, from what you actually intended. And that leads me uh, to sort of the final large point I want to make, which is the difference between Democrats and autocrats when it comes to strategy. Of course it's the case that if you're an autocrat, you can be strategic man, by and large they are men, uh, you could, you, you could, because you have command um, of uh, the levers of power. Uh, you've got probably surrounded by sycophants. Uh, nobody's going to challenge you, and you can be bold and decisive. Which means that if you succeed, it'll probably be on a grand scale. But by goodness, if you screw up, it'll be on a grand scale too. Um, whereas democracies, by virtue of being democracies and the other demands that they're putting on political leaders, are going to make it much harder to develop these, um, these sorts of strategic reasoning and thinking um, that is going to appear quite so bold and decisive. You've got to get it through uh, cabinet. You've got to get it through Congress. Uh, you've got to persuade it to the uh, persuade the media. You've got to persuade the people. And I think I remember we mentioned the important, and maybe it was Peter, the importance of the second opinion. But it's absolutely crucial. The second opinion seems to me often the the difference between. Um, complete catastrophe and a minor inconvenience. Uh, that, that somebody saying, is this wise? Convince me, persuade me, is really important. And political leaders often don't like it, and even in democracies will do their best to circumvent it. But nonetheless, it seems to me to be absolutely cru- crucial and a strength of democracy. Um, and it's a failure of autocracy that it doesn't have that because it means that when they make mistakes, they're bigger, uh, they're often the mistakes are so much bigger. And let me just conclude all of this um, by reference to, to Putin um, uh, because I think it's a really interesting case. Those of you, I'm sure most of you have been following what's been going on in Ukraine over the last year. Um, and it's a staggering story. Um, it seems to me it is the most important crisis of the moment because you've got a major power, a nuclear power, um, that is deliberately trying to shift European security in its direction through force of arms. Now, it's not very effective force of arms, and it's not a lot of arms. Not as many arms as one might think could be devoted to this problem. But that's, what it's, that's what's going on. Therefore, it is a critical problem. 
And a lot of time is spent trying to make sense of what Putin is doing. And you will see opinion absolutely divided on this issue. There are some people who believe he is the master strategist. He's playing chess um, while we're fumbling around trying to work out what's going on. Uh, He's far-seeing, he's going to break NATO, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. Uh, While there's another school of thought, which I have to say I'm a member, uh, which is uh, he's impulsive, um, uh, impetuous, uh, and he's overreached. Uh, and that the problems that are, that are now being faced it doesn't, it doesn't make it easier for everybody else if he does this thing um, but, that he, but that the problems that we now face uh, are a consequence of the fact that he misread the Ukraine situation on quite a consistent basis uh, and that his actions to try to redress the situation have by and large made things worse for him as well as certainly for Ukraine and possibly for us as well Um, So I'm interested in the debate because um, it shows the difficulty of trying to read grand strategy, of of when it is embodied in an individual, and it really is in this case, to try to work out what actually is going on. Um, And you read his speeches, and I would... They're they're long, um, but they're they're revealing uh, because... Um, and people go back to the Munich speech of 2007 or the Valde speech uh, of a few weeks ago but there's other, many other statements statement to the Duma on the annexation of Crimea where you can see all his concerns and anxieties flowing out his attempt to his use of Russian history uh, his use of European history to suggest that Ukraine is a contrived state as if Russia isn't um, uh, that the, the boundaries of Ukraine are arbitrary, as if all European boundaries in some ways aren't arbitrary. Uh, but his use of Ru- Russian history um, to uh, give signals. Um, but what also interests me about it is his use of threats and a sense of menace to actually compensate for weakness. Um, this is where I found it fascinating to note the uh, problems caused by what I described the first school before, who believe that Putin is a master strategist, because the danger of all of this is to credit Putin with more strength and sense of direction than I believe he actually has, and therefore, in a way, encouraging an appearance of power that is not deserved. Let me just, just keep in mind, Russia's GDP is about the same as Italy's. Its per capita GDP is less than Poland's. Um, It has an improving military force, a lot of young men who are conscripted, not necessarily great soldiers, but they're there, they're conscripted. Um, It's a nuclear power and it has veto in the UN. But Britain is a nuclear power with a veto in the UN. Um, But by and large these days, we don't try to exude a sense of menace. Um, some people say in Iran may find this a little bit frightening but by and large we're pleasantly surprised when anybody <laughs> is frightened by the British line anymore it doesn't happen very often but he wants people to be a little bit frightened of Russia and one of the extraordinary themes of uh, Russian pronouncements over the last year is the utter preoccupation with its nuclear power um, 
if you, there was a couple of extraordinary articles in Pravda this week um, which are proclaiming how the Americans are weak and the Russians are strong. People have noticed this and pointed to some rather obscure developments in tactical nuclear weapons to justify this statement. In his uh, Valdai speech, uh, when Putin was explaining, uh, again, indicating a great American grand strategy of um, trying to dominate the world, um, why the Americans still face threats, he described China as an economic superpower and Russia as a nuclear superpower. So that the um, this has seemed to me a rather deliberate ploy. Um, if you look at what's going on at, at the moment, um, I think what's going on is actually probably more defensive than offensive. I think my, my view of what uh, Putin was trying to do after the uh, fall of Yanukovych was foment a counter-revolution in the East, which never took hold. Then he tried to do it by putting in his agitators, and that didn't really work very well. And as his agitators were failing, he had to put in the army uh, and pretend this wasn't going on. People call this hybrid war, which is rather a fancy way of, of describing using bits and pieces of what's available, uh, which just makes it a hybrid, in, in order to try to reinforce a weak position. And I think his position is weak because I don't think he does want to attempt to occupy a large chunk of Ukraine because, never mind sanctions, I just don't think he's got the capacity to do so. Um, so what I think is going on at the moment is he's probably trying to reinforce what they have, possibly push out. One of the interesting things about all of this, uh, which is excuse me, always important when you're looking at other people's strategy, is not to assume that they are... Um, it's all uh, under direct control because whereas Putin, I think, can control everything that the Russians do, he can't control everything that the separatists are doing. Uh, and I think a large part of his problem is that the separatists don't like the idea of being a fifth column within the Ukrainian political system. They want to be separate. Um, what's the point of being a separatist if you can't be separate? Uh, and that, I mean, and, and Putin has never denounced the political objectives of Minsk, which is that Ukraine should stay out. Even at Brisbane, he was still saying that. So he's got a problem uh, of separatists who want to be separate. Well, actually, what he wants to do is to influence Kiev. And that's a basic problem with his strategy. Uh, and I don't think he's quite worked out how to square this circle. So to conclude, um, I don't think Putin is, is the master strategist. I think we're still looking in the contemporary era to find one. Um, what I think it does do is demonstrate the problems that we face in interpreting grand strategy. Uh, it demonstrates the difficulties that we face because um, we're trying to interpret actions in the light of limited amount of words which we're not sure are always telling us all we need to know. In parenthesis, one of the most astonishing aspects of this whole uh, thing has been the disinformation campaign which accompanies it, said to be another part of hybrid warfare. Um, but it's pathetic. I mean, there's article after article written about this amazing Russian propaganda campaign, this amazing... I mean, maybe there are some people outside of Russia, certainly within Russia, it's all 
uh, highly believe. There are armies of trolls that if you say a disobliging word about Mr. Putin will come onto your Twitter feed and denounce you as being a Nazi. Uh, but how much success has this really had? Very little. Um, it's barely even in the realm of plausible deniability. There's plenty of deni denial, but it's not plausible. And again, those of you who watch these things on Twitter, the, uh, within hours of some um, Photoshop-based attempt to demonstrate that MH17 was shot down by uh, a Ukrainian jet, um, this whole photograph uh, had been taken apart on social media and people had shown the different bits uh, where they, they'd all come from, obviously all before July 2014. Uh, it's the idea that this is, uh, that the Russians are sort of great masters of this uh, is nonsense. It doesn't, it hasn't worked at all. They put a lot of effort into it and it would be really embarrassing for them to have to admit that they've been lying through their teeth, so they won't. They're caught in a trap of their own making in this because they can't say we're going to do, we're going to remove troops, which they deny there in the first place. Um, so it, it's created a real problem in the, in the diplomacy, um, and, in, in, in it sowed a lot of distrust. But the idea this is a great strategic success seems to me to be nonsense. So my point, and this I really will conclude, is that. Strategy is situation-dependent and personality-dependent. It's not a thing that exists separate from both of them. Uh, it's, it's about responses to circumstances and the, about the ability to read those circumstances, to diagnose the problems that you face and to think what are realistic solutions to them and to work out the unintended as well as the intended consequences of being able to act. And nobody's going to get all of that right. And therefore, it's a question of constant adaption and change. Um, despite what is assumed, I don't think we're that bad at it. Under the constraints of democratic systems, um, under the constraints of the resource limitations that we face, I don't think we should continually beat ourselves about being bad at it. The only times, you could argue, we didn't get it quite so right is when we stopped acting the status quo powers. But if we act the status quo powers, we don't, on the whole, do too bad. Thank you.